Midwives dissecting life and talking shit. This is Head on View. Issued by the Society of Radical Midwives. Hello and welcome to another app of Head on View. I'm Carly. I'm Laura. And I'm Penny. Hey guys. And today we have got a guest of us. So we're talking to Jess today. Jess is a midwife. She works clinically and in research and she also offers queer and trans birth education at Birthspace. So we're going to have a little chat to her today about how we can be more friendly and allies to the LGBTIQA plus, I hope I got that right, <laughs> family and just like, yeah, what we can do to make life better and how we can help. And we're just going to have a chat to Jess about her experiences as well. She's also a mum of two. So hi, Jess. I guess just tell us a little bit about your midwifey background and well, I think you've done it. So, yeah, I'm a, I guess, a late, late in life midwife. Became a midwife after having my kids and I did it because having my first child was the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. And I feel very fortunate and I know that not everyone has experiences like I had, but it certainly changed me for the better and, and opened my eyes to a whole new world. And uh, I guess as a midwife, What's really important to me is um, working from a trauma-informed perspective and from a really affirming perspective um, and, you know, centering, you know, uh, partnerships and centering the person in their care. And I've been able to do that in a number of ways now, um, working, I guess, you know, in the rank and file in a big Melbourne hospital on the floor, working, rotating through all the areas. And I've also been lucky enough to be able to tailor kind of some things that I do, teaching childbirth education, providing professional development around working with queer and trans families, um, and teaching uh, LGBTIQA plus childbirth education, which I really love. I'm now, um, from all I've learned through doing that, I'm doing some research around that in partnership with a big Melbourne Union hospital. So I feel really lucky. I've I've managed to put my finger in quite a few rise in not that many years. Um, and it's it's great. I'm really grateful for it. Do you think that your experiences, did you have any experiences negatively? Like when you, I know you said like your experience kind of encouraged you to become a midwife, but was, did anything happen to you negatively or, or just experiences you had that you were like, gosh, like if I was a midwife, I would do this so much differently. I think one of the things that I was really like, like I was a bit obsessive about my pregnancies and I was pretty precious. Um, and I'd done a lot of research before I even got pregnant and I knew exactly how I wanted things to be. So I guess I was one of those pretty privileged white people who, um, was able to access the kind of care that I wanted and the care that I knew that would be affirming to me. So just for context, I, um, had my kids with a former partner or another woman. Um, and so we made choices, we were lucky enough to be able to make choices that would support that. So mostly, no, I have to say I didn't, um, I didn't experience too much negativity, but that's because I was in a really privileged position to be able to make some really good choices. So I had my, uh, my first baby in a birth center and then I had my second baby at home and, um, both of those settings are like, uh, I guess 
that's the majority of where queer people will go to birth is either at home or with, you know, in continuity programs. And people do that and make those choices because that's how they, they feel that they're going to be safest and most affirmed. But things like my partner was listed on my file as a female husband. I know when we do handover, and I don't know if it's where I'm working at the moment, or I'm in quite a small private hospital in, in, a, in a quite small city, but, and we do have um, a few same-sex couples, but whenever we do, it's always made very clear in the handover. It's always like, oh, so we've got, let's just say like Rhonda, just making up these names, you know, Rhonda, and this is her partner, Sarah. Oh, they're a same-sex couple. And I'm always like, Oh, is that so that we don't go in and assume this is her friend or sister or, I, I don't know, it's weird. I had a handover the other day where I'm the opposite to Carly. I'm at a, quite a large hospital and handovers for a ward are global. You talk about everyone that you're looking after in the ward, like all together. The in charge said something about, you know, and in this room is this person um, and it's, it's a same sex couple. I'm like, okay. And I'm looking around at other people thinking, does it matter? Is it? Because even in the context of talking about the partner, I say that your partner or your support person, because I can't assume that it's not only, it's, is it not a man? Is it a woman? Is it your mother? Is it your sister? Is it, I don't know, is it your neighbor? I don't know who your support person is. I guess to that, I'd say, yeah, it's one of, it's definitely about how it's said. So it's often like, it's a same sex couple, isn't it? It's not. Yeah. It, 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 it's presented as gossip, not as information often, um, or as something that's a little bit hush hush. So I think there's sometimes, Laura, is a point to saying it's a same sex couple. Sure. Meaning that it's not setting that couple up for a midwife walking into the room and being shocked and, and not. Where well, I mean, I don't care. I, I, and I know I don't say that in a bad way. I know you don't care, but people I do. People do, but I find it weird that people do because I have so many friends in not the trans community, but in the queer community, I know a few, you know, people. And I've never grown up like that. Like my parents have never. I've never grown up in a household where that's been made to be a stigma. It's always just like, this is my friend oh, and this is her girlfriend and it's never been a thing. So I find it, I find it odd. Um, yeah, but that's mm -hmm. the, that's less typical. Mm. Yeah. It's not even necessarily a generational thing. I think we live in a bubble. Um, I think we forget that we live in a bubble a lot. I, I hear horror stories every day about, um, big hospitals and midwives who I think should know better. What do you think is the biggest mistake, as in a genuine mistake, that midwives make with a same-sex couple? I think assuming, I think assuming anything is, is, is a big issue. Um, and I think so much is about language, like you said. So how have we not all moved on to using partner universally? Something so, so simple that can make such a difference. But we're still using husband as the default. And like most of my friends, heterosexual friends, aren't married. So I think people don't even get married anymore. It seems silly that that's still the default. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And the, I think the other thing is um, being awkward around treating the non-birthing partner as an equal parent. Mm. 
I think that's still a big deal for a lot of people and, and um, care providers don't know how to be with that. Instead of just asking, instead of asking, how's this kid going to refer to you? Um, what's yeah. your role? Maybe maybe the non-birthing partner is going to be the primary care who does all the lactating. And I guess we don't ask those things. I know, Jess, you and I have, you know, in the last, I think it was a few months ago, talked about um, a similar couple. And I've had some interesting conversations with colleagues like lactation consultants and other midwives about if there's two women, should they both lactate? And I'm always, now I, I sort of think about it and I'm like, does it matter? Like if both of them want to, that's fine. If one of them, like who's going to go back to work sooner? Who's going to stay at home? It's no different than a mom going back to work really quickly and her male partner staying home and having to learn how to bottle feed. So I find, I find that really interesting that people struggle with that. We all assume that the birth mother is the one that's going to be doing all the primary caring, whether they're a female or a male. Or Why don't we stop assuming that the birth person is going to be the primary care? We've moved on from that, surely. Surely. Surely, surely, you know, a woman, the typical woman's job doesn't have to be staying at home feeding the baby as the default. We're not grown. You would think in the 21st, oh, in the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I know you said you've done like a little bit of education within hospitals. Was that, um, was that you like putting your hand up saying, I think we need this. Yeah. Can we do this? And was that sort of like received well? So it's, look, it started when I started teaching birth education to the queer and trans community privately. And I just started getting phone calls from, uh, from hospitals, from lots of MGPs primarily, actually also other larger hospitals, big, bigger for, forums as well saying, we know, we don't know anything. What we know is that we don't know. <laughs> There's no one doing that work except for me specifically around pregnancy and birth. Um, there's lots of professional development for general healthcare for the queer and trans community. Probably still not enough, but um, no one's really doing it. And it wasn't really my plan to do it, but I'm not going to say no. And um, really the project I'm going to be doing, the new research project I'm starting, is really going to help to resource that and hopefully grow it. So I'm not the only person doing it. Any Also, I'm going to start getting paid properly for doing it. Question, do you work... With, I know we're, we're just talking about same-sex couples as in a female and a female. Do you work with many like um, same-sex partners that are both men or one identifies as a male? Or And forgive me if I use any of the things wrong because <laughs> I probably will get it wrong or they're transgender. And I know my kids ask me all the time and I feel like I always get things wrong and I say the wrong things. But I'd like to know if you've worked with anyone other than yes. two women. Yeah, so I actually joke about um, boring lesbians. Like, that's... <laughs> that is oh, you're just a lesbian. That is so 10 years ago. Uh, and I'm a boring lesbian. No, yes, is the answer. And actually, the work I've primarily been doing recently is around supporting trans people who are having babies. So people who have been assigned female at birth, who have a uterus, and uh, able to, to become pregnant, um, identify as non-binary or as a man. In terms of who's having a really rotten time in the uh, perinatal care system, it's them. And there's really no competent safe care for them. Also worked with um, 
uh, gay dads, so cisgendered um, gay men who had uh, babies through surrogacy. Yep. Um, and being able to do some really great things like helping them to source um, donor donor milk. So those babies, I have one um, client whose baby for six whole months only had donor. Um, what peril? That's six amazing. whole months. Formula didn't touch that baby's lips for, for a surrogacy baby. It's pretty incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, testament to the incredible women who were prepared to donate <laughs> um, to sustain that baby. So, yes, I, I work with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And how are you said that they're like mistreated or maybe misunderstood or their care is not, you know, as good as it should be? Is it just because we, like, as healthcare providers, we don't understand? Like, is there any tips that you could give? midwives, doctors, anyone that's listening out there on how to speak to people who are trans, who identify as, you know, they've got female genitalia, but they identify as, you know, males. So like, how do we, like, how can we better our practice? Well, the very best thing you can do is ask them um, and ask them what language they'd like you to use. So the, the biggest thing by far is around being misgendered. So being referred to as a mother, being referred to as a woman. You can imagine a trans person who's pregnant um, and not particularly comfortable with the body <laughs> that they've fruit off. Being pregnant, just you know, just because they want a baby doesn't mean they're not going to experience a lot of dysphoria and pregnancy is quite likely to, um, to induce a lot of dysphoria. So to then have your care provider um, misgendering you, referring to you as a woman, um, without checking in with you first yeah. um, is really difficult. And what you might find is that people say, um, I, I want to feed, I want to lactate, but can you please use the word chest feed, not breastfeed? They might um, be happy to be referred to as mum. They might not. Like all of this stuff is just a construct. This is just language and we've constructed it so we can adjust it um, accordingly to, to what people need. I think the other thing, particularly when we're working with trans people, is just being really aware that the entire system is set up um, around a paradigm of women's health and the language is that as well. So we're talking about maternity care. We're talking about maternity pads. We're talking like all of this language. I was actually, um, I did a little bit of private work and looked after some trans people. And um, I was in a birth one day and I said to the student, um, and with a trans person, and I said to the student, can you do a maternal heart rate for me? And and I just heard it coming out of my mouth over the top yeah. of the person. And it was just too late. It was like in slow motion. Yeah. And, you know, um, it was just a slip of the tongue. But for them, you know, they're in their zone and I've just gone and ruined it. Like, yeah, how important being kept in your oxytocin zone is. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> very, very important. So, um being so, so mindful of that and adjusting your approach and asking people what language and not assuming, not assuming because you know one transgender person and you've looked after one transgender person and this is how they liked it, that this is how everyone's going to like it. And everyone's different. And I think now like we, I've, I've only been a midwife for, you know, five coming up six years. So I don't know what things were like prior to that. You know, I move around a few different hospitals and I always have to do like cultural safety um, competencies, which is basically about Indigenous care and how we talk to them and how we treat them, but we don't have, so like you said, there's nothing for the, the queer community. Do you 
obviously the answer is yes. Like I'm in my head, I'm asking the question, but I'm just like, obviously that is something that, you know, now, because I don't know when they sort of started introducing this um, Indigenous, like cultural thing, like if that was like how long that's been around, the world is becoming more accepting and open to everyone. So, you know, if we are able to have cultural safety for different Right, which we should. Yeah, and I talk about it as, you know, cultural competency and safety. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's different, obviously, to indigenous yeah. or safety, but it's, it's the same concept. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, Indigenous people have been, First Nations people have been fighting for that for millennia now. <laughs> I bloody hope we don't have to um, wait that long for, for queer and trans people. I, I think our generation of children, I know my children who were, 14 and 10, they're much more, um, for not forgiving, but like they don't question things the way I would question something or my parents in that generation would question something. Like for instance, I'm watching, um, that very popular TV show drag race. My daughter loves it. And she's never once asked me any genderized question. She's never asked me a question about the, the contestants gender. Never, never. My son asked once, but I think that's just because he was being annoying, came downstairs and he was trying to interrupt us. <laughs> All she sees is makeup and glitter and high heels. And she thinks that's amazing. She doesn't. People expressing themselves and having a really awesome time. You know, she's like, this is amazing. That one can sing. This one can dance, you know, and maybe the handful of times I heard her referred to them as a gender, it was she instead of he which I found interesting. And I, that's because my daughter was associating what they were doing in terms of hair and makeup, because I love hair and makeup with a woman, which yeah. I found interesting. Yeah. But that's also in that a drag queen's identity is a woman. That's how they're expressing their identity. My children are exactly the same. In fact, although maybe they're not, maybe they're a bit different. They've grown up obviously in a, in a queer household um, and been exposed to lots of different expressions of gender and it's at the point where both of them mostly just refer to everyone as they or them so using using non-binary pronouns until sometimes I have to correct them like I have trans friends who very much want to be fined as a male or a female of course I don't care you can call me she or they like I I like the idea of gender being a bit expansive but if I like people just to call me Laura not Lauren that's what I'm aiming for this year my name's not Lauren. Yeah. I get called Lauren so much. Not everyone, it's Laura. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yes, I think you're right. I think this generation of kids is really much more open and fluid about what gender and sexuality look like. From what I can tell, they're all queer. <laughs> Do you find, have you come across, um, not just in um, the queer or trans community, um, but people not wanting to um, put a gender on their child or announce the gender of their baby. Have, have you? Oh, do you say not in the queer and trans community? Mm, probably not in, not outside of the queer and trans community, but certainly okay. within it. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember when my oldest, who's nearly 13, was born and some media, someone got picked up in the media that someone had done this. And I actually do think that was a heterosexual couple and it feeling like that was pretty out there and outrageous and dangerous and and I think lots of queer and trans families are doing it now in a way that means that their child can figure out who they are and 
once they're able, ready and able, can identify how they would like. In the media, like I see it as still quite a controversial topic though. Like I see there's a lot of, you know, people choosing not to announce the gender, but there's always very staunch sort of for and against. If someone announces it, then it's always just like, why did you know? Why can't I just tell us? And it's all of a sudden, it's, it's so important for this person to know if their baby. Well, it's interesting that, that, that that's happening at the same time as gender reveal parties are happening, which I just find, I'm sorry, abominable. We don't know what their gender is. We just know what the genitalia is. <laughs> Some parents the other day got told that it was ambiguous genitalia. And I remember the mother asking me, what does that mean? This is how I see my baby. Why does everyone else, why is everyone else confused about the gender? And I'm like, call your baby whatever you want. Like, I'm, I'm just here to make sure you're breathing and you're looked after and you're happy. And, and she's like, the pediatrician made such a big deal about it. It puts very narrow confines on all of us, regardless yeah. of what we identify as the gender we were assigned or. Like, I'm still going to look after that baby and monitor the baby the same way I monitor all the babies. So I, I find that interesting, you know, parents are like, do we need to decide? Uh, no, I mean, ethically, <laughs> no, you shouldn't. I mean, ethically, you definitely shouldn't. Jess, I work in the community and I, to be honest, I don't see a lot of queer and trans couples and I don't know if that's just the council that I work in or, or yeah. if they don't engage with the service due to perception, I guess, of our service. So. We're actually discussing today at work how we can actually engage the queer and trans community because I'm sure, you know, postnatal parents would like to attend a, like a first-time parent group or a sleep and settling. Are there any sort of first-time parent groups for, you know, especially queer and trans couples? Yeah, you've um, you've made it a really good point. Definitely. Uh, so at, at, at the hospital where I work, there's a LGBTIQ plus working group and and one day I brought up the fact that, um, oh, they just made an assumption that there were like, you know, dozens of lesbians coming through our birth sleep birthing all the time. And I was like, mm, that's not what's really happening at this hospital. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, I don't think that it's a particularly safe hospital for queer or trans people to come to. I don't think that the staff are well enough trained. Um, but also it's not a particularly safe area. <laughs> for queer and trans people to live. So that so you're experiencing that, I'm guessing, in the LGA where you're working. I would think, you know, we we tend to live in communities that are safer, that are more progressive, that are more open-minded, also much more expensive. Are there groups? There's not specific, like, new parents groups, but there's definitely lots of play groups. Um, yeah. Lots set up in most of the inner suburbs on all sides. Yeah. Um, and then some in areas um, where there are, uh, you know, further out, where there are large queer or trans populations. Yeah, they're in rainbow, rainbow no, playgroups. Yeah, like rainbow playgroups. Mm. There's a lot of maternal, uh, maternal child health. See, there's, there's that word again. <laughs> attached to them. It's just a community thing. What yeah. can we call it if it's not maternal child health? Child and family health. Yeah. That's what it should be. And mm. that's... Simple, hey? That's good. Okay. Child and family health is a good one. Well, that's what the, the degree is literally called. I don't know why. And it's sad because I have to say to, to partners, like most of our partners, that, you know, it is family as well. It's just not husbands that come and 
like, no, it's actually including you because you're part of the family and your support network. It's just not about, you know, the mum. More broadly, though, it's a good question because what do we call it? I think we're really still workshopping it. I, I use perinatal care a lot, but it's so clinical. Yeah. Um, and it's not understood universally. And also I think when I, I'm thinking about reproductive health care and, you know, so that includes things like abortion. You know, trans men can have abortions. Men can have abortions. Um, and so perinatal doesn't cut it for that either. Forced trimester. <laughs> it's, it's, on, it's out there. Somewhat like we're just going to have to keep workshopping until we get it right. I've never thought of it from uh, Penny's perspective in terms of like, I just assumed all families went to the child health nurse. Like it never occurred to me that a, a trans family or a, a queer family would feel uncomfortable doing that. Obviously they do. Seeing yourself reflected back at you and people that you were the other why would you want to put yourself when you're already in a very, you know, very vulnerable after you've had a baby? Um, I guess that kind of situation. Like not to be mean to my, my career, but there's a lot of stereotypical old school midwives that they haven't really grown up. I know our RLC was helping same-sex couple with their lactation. So, mm. no, she's on board. It's just unfortunate that a lot of older people, and not just generalising older people, I'm sure there's, older and younger people who yeah, haven't grown. And also I think I think a lot of people, I think the vast majority of people, young people at least, would say, of course I, you know, pro everyone having a baby. Like, of course I support it. But unless you're doing something to actively invite someone in and show them that they're safe and prove to them that you're a safe person, it's actually, it's not safe. Um, yeah. And it, it's not enough just to say, sure i'm not homophobic because if you don't know a little bit about um if you're not understanding a little bit about the the difficult path someone might have walked to get to this point or you're not understanding the dynamics in a queer relationship um you know you're not seeing the nuances and understanding the lifetime of discrimination that people have um lived with up to this point then you're actually not safe and you're not someone that someone's going to want to work you know I just be having their baby. The other thing to consider, and this is something I've I've thought about recently, is does everyone in their family support their choices and what they're doing, and how is that affecting um, their pregnancy, their birth, their personal care? You know, if they're if they only have each other, if two people only have each other and they don't have their family, it's not enough. It's not enough, and we. We see it and we, you know, in our, in our profession, I feel like we feel bad for people whose families are stuck overseas because of COVID or, you know, for cultural reasons, they're alone or they're refugees, but we don't have the same compassion for um, a queer or trans couple who might've lost both their families on both sides because of the choices they've made to be together. So I guess we don't, I feel like we don't consider that. And I think it's more, it can be a bit more nuanced than that. Like I think generationally speaking, our generation, most of our parents, you know, haven't actively disowned us, but what they haven't also done is actively embraced us. So, and I think, uh, I can only say this cause I know my ex-partner will never hear this, <laughs> but, um, her family just, and mine either really just never really have come around to the idea that she is the equal parent to our child. 
Some of that is a little, is about kind of really old sexist thinking. They've just kind of substituted her as a dad and as a dad that, who, you know, as a shit dad, as an old school dad, who's not involved in the care of his kids particularly much. That, that my ex is like an absolute partner in parenting. I'm with me 50, 50 down the line. Sometimes, sometimes she does more, sometimes I do more. Like we, you know, um, right. but we're very much equal parents with equal decision-making and equal stakes in, in, in the parenting of our children. Her family have never really recognized that. And I know that my mum really struggles with the idea that I was the one who birthed the kids, but that um, the kids spend 50% of the time at their own house. You wouldn't think that if your partner was male. Is that well, what you're saying? Do you think that her perception would, would she be like, he's a great dad because he's putting in 50%? Yeah, I think so. I think she would think that. Or she would also think she'd also got got some sexist thing, old sexist thinking around that. She'd be like, "Well, shouldn't shouldn't the kids be with their mother?" And by that, she really means Bert's mother. Like, it's like when you see people at the park and you see a dad playing with the kid, and I mean, like, you know, a male figure actively playing with their child, and you're like, "Oh, he must be such a good dad." But you see a mother there, and you think, "God, she looks tired." <laughs> it's sort of the same perception. How do you know that? they're not a same-sex couple aren't there still any i don't have legal is the right word but in terms of like when you have same-sex couples and the birth certificate when you register the birth are you because i don't actually know this are you able to register in victoria yes so you can have two you know you can have mother and and parent listed so uh uh Actually, no, I'm lying. That has changed. That has changed in the last 12 months. So now you can have mother and mother. Yeah. But so they're recognized as equal partners. So it's not as though the, the non-birth, I'm trying to think the right word, the non-birth partner would have to like adopt the child or anything like that because they can be recognized. No. And, and that happens in the US. Um, the, the non-birth parent has to, in lots of states, has to adopt their child. That's not something that can happen here. A shame because... There are states in Victoria, in the country, where um, where same-sex partners can't be listed on the birth certificate. So those people really have no rights. The other thing, though, is you can't have father and father, or you can't have a father birthing a baby. Like you can't get that birth certificate. Why don't they just change it to parent one and parent two, or just whatever you want? So how does that work then? If there's two gay men, say like when you have two gay men and they have like a surrogate, then uh, yes, no. In that instance, you can. Okay, right. In that instance, you can. Surrogacy is legal, right? I feel like that's something I should know. (laughs) Uh, uh, Altruistic surrogacy. So you could have a friend, a baby for your best friend, or uh, compensated in any way. Yeah. And largely, still, what's happening in Australia is it's really only very, very wealthy, predominantly white men who are having surrogate babies, usually with surrogates, commercial surrogacy from the US. So that's something, so in this tiny little hospital that I'm working, we have had two sets in the time I've been there. So I've been there about six months where I've seen like two sets of surrogate parents, which I had not like had any experience with surrogacy before even working in the large Melbourne hospital. So well, the large Melbourne hospital where you and I worked together, I did a surrogate, I did a birth for a couple of gay dads. Yes. And it was the most amazing thing ever. It happens probably because that's a private hospital. And yeah. Yeah. Little pockets of privilege. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a US 
surrogate baby um, in crass terms costs about $250,000. Yeah. I feel you see it a lot in the US just because, I mean, if someone said to me, I'm going to pay you 250 grand to have a baby, okay. That's well, yeah, you could pay me 250 grand to have a baby too, but no, it's not. It's no way you could have money to be that. I'll have like, another <laughs> the, um, the money isn't going to the surrogate. Oh, what? Wait, it's... Oh, I thought the surrogate got paid. Okay. No, no, no. The surrogate does get paid, but then yeah. that money goes into legal fees and lawyers and like, you know, bureaucracy. So. Um, Amer- American hospital fees. And we? yes, that's probably. Yeah, that would be daddy. It is. So, like if one of my sisters said to me, look, I really want to back, because I don't want children. So one of my sisters came to me and said, you know, they really wanted a child and they couldn't carry it and they what I would a hundred percent do. Like it wouldn't bother me. I'd do that for them. Like I would I would have loved to have done it, but my ovaries and my uterus too old to triple now. <laughs> my shop is shut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shut too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my okay. god. <laughs> um I, one other thing I want to say about surrogacy is that um until recently there was also lots of surrogacy happening in countries like Thailand and India. Um, where poor round yeah. women yeah. were being hugely exploited and that has been banned here, thankfully. And my experience of commercial surrogacy in the US has been often there women who love having babies and have got three or four of their own kids and use the money they make with surrogacy to stay at home for a bit longer with their children. It's not, I, I always thought you that these women were very exploited and I'm sure some of them still are and I'm sure some of them are trying to escape horrendous poverty, but it's not always that way. Mm. But you and I have just said, Carly, we would. Yeah. Not for $50,000 or whatever it is. I mean, I wouldn't say no, but yeah, no, like I a hundred percent, if like a really good friend or a family member wanted it, a hundred percent, I would do it. And I wouldn't expect anything, you know, maybe I could like the middle name. Well, Carly, Carly. I would say, like, I would totally give someone my eggs. That's fine. They can have my eggs. I mean, I'm probably too old. I'm 44 soon. No, when she pressed the eggs. Way too old. too old. <laughs> hey, man, you never know. Crusty old eggs. Penny, you know my crusty old eggs. <laughs> hey, my eggs are good. It's just, it's just the home for the eggs. <laughs> How do you think midwifery or... I hate to say maternity care. Now that I'm saying it, I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> uh, Prenatal care. Perinat- How do you think, what do you think we need to do to make it change, to have it, have a safer, I want, I want people to know that, like, especially if they're coming to me or to some, like, that they're safe. Like, what do we need to do, do you think, in like the next five years or 10 years to make it safe? There's lots of little things that we can do. And I think it's um, not just about making it safe for people having babies, but it's just making about making it safe for queer and trans people everywhere. So little things you can do in a hospital context is putting a um, rainbow sticker on your name tag um, yep. to indicate that you're an ally. But I, I really encourage people to think really strongly about that before they do it, because if if you're just putting a sticker on because you know some gay people and, and think you know some stuff, that's actually dangerous. I don't know anything. That's why I'm talking to you, Jess. <laughs> yes. So I think I, I've noticed that lots of students have rainbow flags on their tags now, and I, I really doubt that they all have had kind of the cultural 
um, train the training and have the understanding. Some of them I'm sure do. Some of them I'm sure have lived experience. But I want to see people seeking out information about how best to care. And it is difficult to do that because there's nothing, there's no resource but that there will be soon. This is what you need to do, Jess. You need to get into hospitals. You need to infiltrate. Right now, if a midwife was looking for, there is no sort of national resource or, or that we could go to to be like, oh, here's this competency that you can. There's nothing, but there will be once I'm finished this project that I'm doing. <laughs> it's a long project. The other thing that I am doing at the moment, which I forgot to mention before, is that I got funding to build a, um, a website um, specific to childbirth education specific to LGBTIQ mm. plus people. Um, and it is birth education for the queer and trans community, but I think it's also a really good resource um, for anyone providing care to these people, to, you know, our communities, because it, it's useful to have a read and to see the language and, and get a sense of um, what the barriers and the obstacles are and, and how things might be done um, in, in our community. Is it more about, because I, I mean, I'm just making an assumption here that the basic education is, is, this, is the sort of same as in the antenatal education. It's more about how we are treating people and how the language we're using around them and understanding or trying to understand or have some empathy around their background and where they come from. I reckon 90% of it is that language matters. But, all, but there's also understanding often the trauma that people have um, come through to get to this point. Um, even just getting pregnant, you know, <laughs> lots of people come to my classes with just awful, awful medical slash IVF trauma. IVF is a, not everyone does IVF. I should say that I didn't do IVF, but IVF is so traumatic. And, and I, in my classes, spend the first hour or so just debriefing the, the conception process in a safe place. Um, so just having, you know, a sense of what people have been through to get to this point. That is something that is often um, mentioned. Oh, this is an IVF pregnancy, whether they're same sex or um, non-same sex couple. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's often mentioned and people are just like, oh, okay, like, you know, why, why do we need to, so often people are like, oh, okay, like, why is that, why is that relevant to, to us as a midwife in our postnatal care? Um, but I think definitely, yeah, what you're saying in like recognizing how long it's taken them or it may, you know, for some people it may have taken long, but just the journey. And it can be a really long journey for some and a short journey for others. And it's, yeah. yeah lots, I mean, lots of queer people, they're not at all medically infertile. So they actually get pregnant quite quickly, but it's the hoops you've got to kind of jump through and the ridiculous counseling you have to do for all of that stuff. Yeah. It's not like a, I've got a friend that is like, is doing it as a single mother, like she's not queer or trans, but it also comes down to how much it, it costs to, mm. if you don't know the man that is willing to help out, like. It's quite pricey. Mm, mm, and if you don't have the support from your extended family, like it all adds up, which is, you know, really um, upsetting. Did you have to feel you had to drop any sort of legal document to, you know, to, did you feel like I might need to protect myself or, you know, yeah. It's changed a little bit. So when my eldest was born, um, the, my partner wasn't recognised as a parent yet. So um, she couldn't be on the birth certificate um, and um, it was also excellent because I got parenting payments single from Centrelink, 
which we affectionately called lesbian parenting payment. We essentially like knew that I was partnered, but they couldn't do anything about it. Then they didn't, because Centrelink didn't recognise like same-sex couples. But um, we also, we drew up an agreement that was with our donor that was really, it's not legally binding. So you really got it and there was no way to make it legally binding. But saying, you know, him saying, um, this isn't, this is a gift. Um, I have no intention of parenting and us saying we have no intention of extorting money from you or claiming child support or any of those. Yeah. And we're really lucky. Our donor, um, and, uh, and us, we've always been on exactly the same page and it, no problems have come up ever, but I, I certainly know lots of people who've had nightmare donor experiences. And sure. that's one reason why people got use on IBS, um, because they can access sperm banks and, and yes. the safeguards are better. We gotta have the money. Yeah. We gotta have the money. Well, I think this has been such an enlightening chat. Um, I think the one thing for me that I'm taking away from this really is the language and, and talking to people. Cause I feel I'm always very quite a, you know, open person. Um, I try not to judge anyone. Um, I'm quite, you know, whatever I very big family. So everything in there, like, you know, I'm mixed race. We've got races. We've got trans in my family, gay, everything. So I've just always been whatever, whoever. Um, but I think definitely for me, the language thing, like it never even really occurred to me to say to, cause I know even my family, people that if they want to be called, they've just said, oh, um, so my niece is a, is a trans woman. And she said, okay, this is my name. I have to be called she, great. But looking after people, because I just think, I, you know, I was looking after a gay couple the other day and it never occurred to me to say to them, oh, how would you like to be referred to? So I think for me, that that is my big takeaway from this, that that is something that I will make sure I um, do in future to make sure I'm not offending people or making people feel uncomfortable without even realising. That will mean so much to people. I wouldn't have known how to ask the question. Cause, because I'm like you, I'm like Carly. I would have just been like, uh, because I find it so odd to be judging someone in the first place. Like, I'm just like, yeah, cool parents. Let's do stuff like whatever. I don't, it doesn't, it's never occurred to me to judge the person based on their, their gender or, you know, their sexual orientation. It's, I've not grown up in a household like that. But I've never known how to ask people, how, how would you like me to refer to you? Like, I'd, Well, I think you say just that, Laura. <laughs> I don't think I've ever asked anyone that. I'm like, maybe I should be asking people this. <laughs> I mean, maybe we should be asking everyone. We're assuming people's gender all the time and their sexual, really? for that matter. Um, and I think also it's okay to make mistakes as long as you, in, like, you show that you're an open, willing learner. Sure. Um, people, people understand. I mean, we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to always be the ones that shoulder it, but we know that progress is slow. So you make a little mistake, you apologize, correct yourself and move on, but you're right. Just simple. Tell me what language you'd like me to use. But they're really good ways of phrasing it as well. Yeah. And this all comes, you know, as, as midwives who are very, um, uh, kind of dedicated to the idea of being person-centered or woman-centered when we're making our relationships with our the people we're caring for this is all stuff that we sh we're doing anyway we, you know we're building the rapport and it doesn't feel so uncomfortable to ask these questions if we're actually doing midwifery right yeah if we you know if it's a transactional patient 
mid, you know, nurse midwife relationship. It's very different to a midwife relationship. Any final points or comments that you'd like to make, Jeff? Well, I obviously need to put in a plug for my class. Yes, yes, do it, do it. And we will tag, we will tag them as well. So Jess is in Melbourne for everyone listening. There will be a website, which is www.queerandtransbirthproject.com. Um, and that will be the birth education um, for queer and trans community, um, where I think you'd be able to find lots of hints and tips to better your practice as well. Well, thank you so much, Jess, for chatting to us today. We love, we love a guest. And we will see you guys all next time. Don't forget to give us a follow Head On View podcast. Any concerns, questions, queries, whatever, send them our way. Bye. Until the next episode, it's time to boot this baby home. I didn't know it was still recording.